details. This is not a second creation or anything like that. This is simply going back and talking about how God, and giving some background material to how God created, very specifically, the, not only the creation, but man in particular. The emphasis in Genesis chapter 2 is on the creation of man and his place in this world. There are many times that we give a story, and then you find out that uh, later on, there's more to add. Yesterday, we had the privilege of helping Bev Bozak a move into a new house, and I come home, face it, oh, how'd it go? Oh, it went good. Well, then the next thing you do is you give the story when you're eating supper or something is, I carried the most, the biggest, most heavy piece of furniture I've ever carried in my life today. It was heavier than the piano. And believe me, those that help will vouch for it. I, I double-checked with them. Uh, this thing was huge. It was heavy. It was oak, and it was heavy. Um, you know what? That's a detail. That doesn't mean I did two different moves. It's simply the details. That's Genesis chapter 2. So, with that in mind, looking at it is not a second creation, but looking at what God has done. And by the way, if you're looking ahead, we will also be using Romans chapter 5. You might say, how does Genesis chapter 2 and celebrating the Lord's Supper go together, it absolutely does in many ways go together because it is the beginning of everything else that you will see. First of all, we're going to look at the details of the completion of creation. Notice it says, starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their host. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Now, there are a couple of things that we need to look. The word completed simply means it was accomplished, it was finished, nothing else needed to be done. Creation is over. That does not mean God doesn't still do miracles. He absolutely does. Rick just reminded us that things happen. Rick wasn't even going to sing this morning, but obviously somebody was praying for him. I don't know who it was, but he was able to get up here and sing because his voice has been messed up all week. The point is this, is God still does extraordinary supernatural things. There's no doubt about it. But creation is completed. He says it's finished. And that's what Genesis 2.1 says. And it says that it's not only the heavens and the earth, but everything in it. The vast multitudes of angels and fish and fowl and, and animals. All of those things were created. And then it says he gets to the seventh day and he rested. Now we look at that and say, oh, God was exhausted? Hold on a second. I thought he's all powerful. How could God be exhausted? How could God need a break? That is not how you need to read this. In fact, there's a much better way of reading this because it is not because God is needing a rest. He didn't need a good night's sleep or a whole day off because he had exhausted himself, exerted himself. He rested in that he was ceasing from the work that he had done. This is not a rest of tiredness, of exertion, but a rest from completion. For example, if you were to be in a courtroom, they would say something like this at one time or the other. The defense rests. Doesn't mean they're tired. They might be tired, but they're resting because they've completed their whole 
case. They've given the whole case. I'm not a baker and I don't cook, but I also know that I've heard that if you bake something in the oven, it'll say you take it out, place it on a rack, and let it rest for 10 minutes or 15 minutes before you cut it and serve it. It gives it that time. It's not because it's tired. It just needs, it's taking a break in between there. That's all it is. God is simply done with what he's doing. One of the things that I would always challenge you is the whole, the Bible is a whole. Yes, it's 66 books, but it is a whole document. It is the word of God to us. And when you look at this, immediately my mind goes to Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 8. Because we've now introduced the seventh day, the day of rest, the Sabbath. By the way, do not be confused. I don't care what you were taught in Sunday school when you were a child. Saturday is the Sabbath day for the Jews. It always has been. It is a day of rest. That's it. It has never been changed to Sunday, never will be changed to Sunday. It's the seventh day. It's the day of rest. But here's what it says in Exodus chapter 20, giving additional details to what God had already done. It says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day, same word, to keep it holy. It's a different kind of day. It's separate from the rest. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but The seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female servant or your cattle or the sojourner who stays among you. In other words, he says, here it is. This has been a pattern of how God did things, of how I want you to live. In fact, it's under the law. It was mandated that they had to keep the Sabbath day different than the rest. And it was mandated that only six days were they allowed to live. But here's the connection, using the same terminology so that there's no confusion. For it says, in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This parallel passage gives us the meaning. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, it says, this is the seventh day. It's the day he rested. And Exodus, when he is giving the law, makes that very clear. It is a 24-hour day. Anyone that tries to tell you otherwise has some really, really touchy theology. Because the Bible says what it means, means what it says. Just remember, the Bible was only written by one person. That's the Holy Spirit who guided those who wrote. And yes, indeed, Moses wrote both Genesis and Exodus as the human penman. But notice, it's six days, a week, literally seven 24-hour days, and God puts those both together. uh, And from the very beginning, he said, this is the way it is. And it says that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So he makes it clear that he is now ceasing and desisting in the creation process. There's nothing else that God is creating. When it says blessed, it simply means that he's speaking well of. A curse is to speak against. A blessing is that you speak well of. And God is saying, of all the days, this is the one that he holds out among the rest of them. 
because it is the Sabbath day. At this point, God did not mandate, mandate that man couldn't work on the seventh day. He hadn't done that at that point. It wasn't until the law was given, Exodus chapter 20, for example, that God said, no, this is now a time that will set Israel apart from all the other nations. None of the other nations had a Sabbath day, a rest day. It also was a test to the nation of Israel as to would they be obedient to what God had showed them and had ordered them. And obviously, they did not do that, breaking the Sabbath day under the law. We do not live under the law. We have our own application of it, but we don't live under the law. If you went and gathered sticks to make a fire on the seventh day, you could be killed. In fact, is there was a death penalty attached to the first nine commandments. If you broke the tenth one, uh, you would probably have already broken one of the others. So it's a test of obedience. It's a symbol to this nation, the nation of Israel, that it is different than all the rest. Today, we have a Sabbath rest also. You want to find out about it? You need to read the book of Hebrews. It's all through Hebrews. It's not a specific day of the week. It is a position that we are in. We are in a position of resting from striving for our salvation, striving to be good enough, striving to stay saved, trying to get saved. He says, no, 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 no. There's a rest for the people of God. This rest is a rest that's in a finished work. I told you. When you look at what's before us, this matzah and grape juice represents a finished work. One that we're not striving for. The whole of it has been completed. Everything that needed to be done for our salvation, for our sins to be forgiven, for us to have eternal life, for us to have the power to live has already taken place. We need to simply appropriate it by faith. We live in a time when we have a Sabbath rest. In fact, is if you're still struggling and striving to try to get saved or to stay saved or those kinds of things, I'm here to tell you today, there's freedom. There is a day of completion for all believers. And it's not a day of the week. Now, I do believe that there is a principle here also that applies to us. And that is you cannot work seven days a week and exhaust yourself. You will die prematurely. I know friends of mine, I, I argue with them all the time. you got to stop this. You're going to die of a heart attack long before your time. Because you're not willing to back off and take a day off. Now, I'm going to tell you that as a pastor, I should be a living example of this, but I'm going to tell you I'm a living non-example at times. You could say, Sunday's my day off. I get up, I take a leisurely breakfast, I go to church, I go home, I take my afternoon nap, and I, you know, I just kind of take the day and relax. When you're a pastor, it doesn't work that way. It's just the opposite. I'm here at 7.30 or really close to 7.30 every Sunday morning, and I don't leave here till somewhere around 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. Now, I go home in between. But in between, I've already taught or preached. Wait, I've got to remember how many times I do. Four times? Yeah. Four times? Yeah, four times. Uh, I had a counseling session in the afternoon. I also studied in the afternoon. In other words, it's a full day. It's probably my longest day. So... Do I take one of those other days? I'll tell you what. Sometimes I don't, and I pay for it at times. 
Also, I know Monday mornings, um, I'm pretty lazy sometimes. Because you know what? God knew that you can't work seven days a week. So there is something. Don't follow my lead. Be much better than me. In fact is, the New Testament goes so far as to say, and Jesus said this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And by the way, he said, and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. We need to understand God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. But then we have the details of the various parts of creation itself. For example, uh, and we're going to pick this up uh, in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And notice, and this confuses people, and they say, oh, well, see, day doesn't mean what it means. Notice there's no numeral adjective there. It's simply a designated uh, time and space, a set of events that is referred to. For example, other things in the Bible, and we could go through a whole list of these, but it says the day of the Lord. It is not talking about a single 24-hour day. It's talking about an extended period of time that includes certain events. I'm getting older, and I know that. I can prove it over and over again. But we go, back in my day, we didn't have these fancy doodads, and we did things this way and did that way. The older you get, the more you say that. I used to hate when my dad did it, my grandpa did it. Now I'm doing it. But back in the day. Now, we're not talking about a specific day in our lives. We're talking about when we're in our teens and 20s and 30s. You know, things were different. That's the way it's referred to here. It's referring to the whole account of the heavens here. It's referring to all of Genesis chapter 1. And it says there in verse 5, it says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Notice it ends with no man. Why? The emphasis in this chapter is man's relation to the rest of the creation. The Sabbath day, you know, all these types of things. And here is the governorship. The stewardship that God was entrusting to man for all of creation. And as you notice, it's jumping back to before there wasn't, there were no plants. And then he says, uh, there was no rain on the earth. We can look at this whole thing and say, you know, and lots of people say this, and I'm going to try to elaborate real quickly on this. But verse 6 says, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Now, there's some things you can know. Obviously, the atmosphere at this time was very, very different than what it is today. If you remember, God separated the waters below the heavens from the waters above the heavens. In other words, there was what some people call a canopy. There was vapor in the air that's not exactly like the clouds we have, but it was different. That was there, it seems, to the time of the flood. But here it says that... There was no rain and there was a mist that watered the ground. How long did that take place? All we know is it took place up until this point. Many people, and I'm inclined to go this direction, but I will not be dogmatic, that that was probably true up until the time of the flood. But you cannot prove that, I don't believe, from the scripture. If you know better than I do, please let me know. But there was definitely a difference in the atmosphere that 
was around the people. In fact, as we know, because they're still digging them up, but they have mammoths that were buried in ice on the poles and in their stomach was grass. So there was a time when the South Pole and the North Pole weren't capped with snow and ice. They were a meadow where animals could graze. It was very, very different, and of clo- including the weather patterns. That's the case. There was no rain, but there was a mist, a dew-type thing, that covered the ground and watered the ground. The fact is, there's something else you're going to hear at the ne- end of the sermon I never saw until this week. I've never. I, it's there. It was there all along. But about how different it is at this time in God's creation as it is today. But one of the things that you need to remember, in this world, there are basically two ways you can look at creation in the beginning of things. You can look at it, as I believe the Bible does, that there is a creation. God spoke things and put them into existence himself. And there was a catastrophe, the flood, that made all the things we see around us that give the appearance of lots of age, but were very short, in about a year's worth of time. Or there is the world's view, and unfortunately adopted by many in the church, that we got here by chance and mutation and natural selection, and everything continues on the same. Um, And to make that look that way, you've got to put millions and billions of years in there, or you can't come up with anything. But the Bible is clear. God spoke it into existence and brought a catastrophe on this world. Then we also have the details of the creation of mankind. God already said that he created them male and female in chapter 1. Now we see some of the details that God is going to inform us of. Verse 7 begins with this. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul. Notice. God chose in creation to use pre-existing materials to create Adam. There's no problem with that. Still a miracle. Remember the first miracle Jesus um, performed? He used pre-existing materials to do that. How did he do that? He used water and turned it into wine. In this case, he used dust and turned it into a bunch of you guys. I mean, Adam. We're, We're dust sometimes, too. And by the way, when he created Eve, he also used pre-existing materials uh, to create her. One of the things that is getting very popular today in some circles is that Adam is not a real person. He is just the collective conscience of all humanity or he represents all humanity and all those things. Remember, when God created the world, he created multiple angels, multiple animals, multiple fish, multiple birds, multiple uh, plants, but he only created one man. I think I can prove that. I'm going to do this very quickly because as you look at it, is there a real Adam? Does the Bible teach that there's one single human being by the name of Adam who was the original? The answer biblically is unequivocally that he absolutely existed and he is the, he is the one who named the animals. And you go, well, uh, mankind could have gotten together and had a consensus of what to name the animals. But when you look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 20, it's very clear. It's singular. The man 
Not the men, the man gave names to all the cattle. And it says, but for Adam, there was not a, found a helper suitable for him, singular. In other words, it wasn't that the world was all full of men and there were no women. That's not what it says. It says just the opposite of that. Adam had a very specific duty to perform. Adam had a wife. Think about that. It makes no sense if Adam simply means mankind and he isn't a real person with a real name, with a real genealogy, with a real source in the creation of God. Uh, this makes no sense. But it's personal. He says to Adam in, in Genesis 3.17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Again, it's singular. And in verse 21 of that same chapter it says, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and close them. Again, it's referring to a very specific person, not a general humanity. Adam had children with his wife. Uh, unless you have some really weird morals going on here, um, you have something that you have to deal with. In fact, is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and she named him uh, Seth, etc. In other words, this is the normal thing of how it works today. It worked that way back then. A man and a woman, it's the only way it works. Uh, you cannot have multiple people having a child. It just doesn't work that way. But you also find out that Adam is an individual in all the genealogies. Whether you start in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, which we looked at, it says she named him Seth. And then it says, because he's in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And then verse 26 of Genesis 4 goes on to say, to Seth, to him also was born um, a son born, and his name was Enosh. And then it says something curious. Then men, plural, began to call upon the name of the Lord. All of a sudden, it's the first time it's plural. Because it's talking about specific men with specific names who are actually related to each other because of birth. And uh, it's interesting that that's how it comes out. Also, Adam is identified with a personal name. If you were to go in any of the genealogies that go back and start with Adam, you will find it's Adam, and then it's Seth, and then it's Enosh, etc. You go to uh, First Chronicles chapter 1, it's a very weird way to start a book. But the first verse in the first chapter of First Chronicles says, Adam, Seth, Enosh. <laughs> That's how it starts. It's kind of wouldn't be the way I would start. You go, okay, uh, yeah, I see a little bit. But let's go to the New Testament because guess what? In the New Testament, it goes backwards. So you say, well, you know, yeah, it started with mankind and then we got some names and Adam doesn't really count. But if you go to Luke chapter 3, and I'm not going to do the whole thing because we would be here all day reading genealogies and you're not interested in that and neither am I. But Luke chapter 3 verse 38 says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In other words, it reverses the order and goes right back. And it's all personal names of each generation and it goes back. There is no way that you can look at that and say, well, it really isn't a personal being. But the one I found very interesting, uh, that 
for me, maybe is the, the most important of all of them, is, is this. That Adam is seen as someone who has a beginning, an end, a lifespan, and a death. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, it says, Then Adam lived 130 years. He became the father of a son. And according to his image, and named him Seth. Verse 4, the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Again, look at the singular here, talking about a specific person. And then all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. Guess what? This is not talking about a collective conscience. It's not talking about the human race as a whole. The human race didn't all live and do all of these things. No, there was a specific man that did that. And you might say, why are you so wrapped up in this? Adam was a real person. Because we didn't get to the end of this point yet. Because there's a really important point. It's going to land up being right here by the time we're done. But just hang with me a little bit. And it also, by the way, says... In Romans chapter 5, verse 14, we'll come back to it here in a moment again. But nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. And then it says, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, uh, who is a type of him who is to come. That him to to come in the context is Jesus Christ himself. Adam and Eve are also found to be used by name in the same context. And The New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. The next verse says, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, that being Eve, being deceived, fell into transgression. This is not referring to humanity in general. It's referring to Adam and Eve as separate entities given to us by name, by God. Now the last one. And this is the one that caps it all off as far as I'm concerned, is that Adam and Jesus are referred to as real people. Now, here's where the theology comes in. If Adam is simply a broad concept of man or the common consciousness of mankind, then you know what you have of Jesus? You have what uh, one of our politicians said. Oh, all, all these children, they were talking about the people that are getting, the kids that are getting dumped off in the United States from Mexico. They all have a spark of divinity into them. You know what? You don't have Christ as a living human being that we just sang about, who died on a Roman cross, who shed real blood, who was in our place, who was hungry and tired. You, don't have, you just have a Christ consciousness. Guess what you have? You have Eastern religion. Period. Because there's no real person that you can identify. But Jesus Christ is identified in the New Testament. All Christianity for all time has always acknowledged that. They've got some things wrong about it here and there. But they've always acknowledged that. And in the same context, Adam is seen as a real person, just like Jesus Christ is a real person. If you will, please, and we'll do this quickly, turn to Romans chapter 5. If you've never seen this, uh, and all I'm going to do is read through and just point out various things as we go through it. Let's start in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Notice how it's written. Notice exactly what it says. I'm not going to read the whole thing because that's a whole sermon in itself. But Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered in the world, and death through sin, etc. And then, oh, by the way, death spread to all men. It wasn't uh, just a common kind of thing over everybody. It started with Adam. 
Verse 14, I already looked at. It says that death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even those that hadn't sinned, that willful sin that Adam sinned. The likeness of Adam's offense. Verse 15, it says, For by the transgression of one, many die. Notice what what Adam did affected everybody else. Notice, a singular person affecting everyone else. And then it ends, And the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. In other words, he takes it and says, Adam affected everybody. Jesus Christ has the potential to affect everyone. Verse 16, the gift is not like that that came through the one who sinned from the judgment that arose from one transgression, but continuing on, the transgression of the one brought death and it reigned um, through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign Through the one, Jesus Christ. In other words, if Jesus Christ is real, Adam's real. If Adam is real, Jesus Christ is real. You cannot separate them. They're individuals and that one brought life and forgiveness and peace and a life worth living for in heaven and everything else. The one brought transgression and sin and the downfall of the whole human race. In other words, Adam affected everyone. Jesus Christ and his death, his life affects everyone. In fact, is verse 19 goes on to say, As through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. And this is how it ends. The law came so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just in case you didn't catch who that second Adam is, that second one that represented the whole human race and died for the whole human race. That's the whole thing. If if Jesus Christ is real, he's a real person with a real name and real in history, then Adam is also. But we also want to continue on because we have the beginning of a perfect setting. When you think of creation, many people instantly think the Garden of Eden. By the way, I don't blame them. It really sounds like a neat place to be. It was a perfect setting. In fact, is in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man, notice, the man uh, whom he had formed. Not mankind or collective consciences, the man. And then he says he created out of the ground uh, all the trees that were pleasing to sight, good for food, and the tree of life which is in the midst of the garden. Keep that in mind. When we get to Genesis 3, you're going to find out Satan took all of those and flipped them upside down and used them to tempt Eve. And that's where it comes from. The tree of life, we will look at it in a future sermon, but it always has to do with eternity. It always has to do with the life that God has available. But it doesn't stop there, and it says there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was in the midst of them. As we know, and that's my last point, is there was one command, and it was attached to that tree. But I told you the atmosphere was much different. So was everything else. Look at Genesis 2.10. 
never really comprehended this before. Knew it, but never comprehended it. It says, now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there, it divided and became four rivers. Think about this. This would indicate that it didn't rain and it didn't snow. Because how do we get rivers? Well, we can get them from a spring and a stream and a creek and, you know, and goes into a river. But here, and and believe me, I'm using sanctified imagination and it is really messed up. So I'm going to tell you. But it seems to me that if you're going to have a river come from the middle of Eden and then it goes out and it branches, it's 180 degrees different than it is today. Starts small today and keeps getting together and get bigger and bigger. In this case, it's big and it branches out and goes the other way. The atmosphere, the topography, the geography, everything was different before the flood. And that's exactly what is happening here. I don't understand. I just imagine, and this is a, I imagine this huge, huge hole in the middle of Eden. And it's just whelming up like a, like a, a spring. And it goes from there out. I don't know what it looked like, but that's what I'm guessing. You can use your own imagination there. But it's totally something I've never seen. Neither have you. But one last thing, the details of God's command. There's one command, and believe me, perfect setting. No needs. No needs. Nobody can say, well, I knew it wasn't right, but everything was perfect. And here's what it says. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree in the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. One command. One disobedience. We saw that in Romans chapter 5. The disobedience of one man. man. By the way, the elders and the men can gather, please. Uh, that resulted in transgression and sin being through the whole human race. Everyone was affected by the sin of Adam, passed down from generation to generation. On the other hand, Jesus Christ made it possible for those that had been shot through with sin to come back into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Wasn't something we could do for ourselves. Adam did it on his own. He disobeyed God. But Jesus Christ, his obedience, remember that from Romans chapter 5? His obedience made it possible for all men to come into a perfect relationship with God through his work on the cross. This morning, as the men are coming forward, I'm going to encourage you just to bow your head, bow your heart before the Lord right where you are now, and make sure that you are living a life that's worthy of what Jesus Christ has provided for you. The Bible says if you don't do that, and you eat and drink and pretend like everything's right in your life, and then Christ has changed you, and you're still living in sin, you're eating and drinking judgment onto yourself. And that brings consequences of being sick and weak and even death. I encourage you to pray. If there's anything you need to confess, by all means, confess it. If there's something that affects someone else, by all means, you leave here and get on your cell phone, go to their house, do whatever you need to do to get that right so that you can eat and drink in a worthy manner. See, he's given us life, forgiveness of sin. And to live in sin on a regular basis is not living a life that's worthy of what Jesus Christ has done for you.
sorry. I'm going to ask uh, Kyle if he'll thank the Lord for his body that he has given for us. Father, thank you for today. I thank you that you brought us here to worship. And Father, I thank you for the body and for your body that you shed for us. And Father, as we partake in this, I pray that it's a a reminder of the great sacrifice that you made for our salvation. And I pray that uh, that we go throughout this week remembering this, that's not just a remembrance for today, but that's a remembrance every day so that we can yes. live according to your word. I ask this in your son's name. Amen.
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said unto them, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. I ask Brother uh, Cody if he would thank the Lord for his shed blood. God, it is good to be together as the body of Christ. And uh, Lord, it is only possible through your shed blood. So we thank you. Uh, thank you for the forgiveness that we have in the blood that you shed on the cross. And thank you for the opportunity and the open relationship that we can have with you. Uh, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. and the physical and spiritual torment that he suffered on our behalf so that we could have life in you. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for your blood, uh, Lord, and I pray that we would never grow tired of, of the thanks that we can have in our hearts uh, for the blood that you shed for us. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink from it, all of you. If you would rise as we're dismissed by prayer. Father, thank you for the celebration you've given us. Thank you for the thanksgiving we can give. Thank you for the proclamation of your death till you come again. Thank you for your great work, your great love, and your great provision. Lord, help us not only to leave here understanding that we've celebrated the greatest thing that's ever happened on this earth, but Father, help us to leave here living it out, making our lives count, living worthy, honorable, holy lives before you. And Father, also, as we leave, leaving with a focus that we are going to be with you because of what you've done for us and how we've trusted you as our Savior, be with you forever. Lord, help us to live in the light of these things. And we praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. God bless. Go with God.